Well, good morning. We uh, are grateful to have you uh, back together again for uh, First Kings, and we're going to look, or One Kings, if you if you prefer. I, I, I'm sorry that my habit will be to say First Kings, and uh, I think I think we say First Samuel somewhere in here, but I'll just uh, hope you'll indulge me as we talk about uh, One Kings. A few weeks ago, I had the opportunity to uh, talk about uh, One Kings 4 and 5, and we saw Solomon come into leadership. He had not been, um, he had really just was getting started as uh, David passed away in these first few chapters of Kings. And the writer here in Kings repeatedly made the point, uh, if you remember back a few weeks ago, uh, repeatedly was making the point that there was no one like Solomon. There was no one like Solomon. His riches, uh, his uh, wisdom, it far surpassed anyone uh, anywhere. He built and uh, furnished the temple of God and Rulers came from all over. They, they came from all over the known world to interact with him and ask him questions and just uh, sit at his feet to just be there uh, while Solomon was teaching and giving Proverbs and all of these kinds of things. Uh, as we've gone through, I think probably the most impressive thing about Solomon is that the Lord appeared to him and uh, not just once, but the Lord appeared to him twice. Uh, I believe most of us would say if uh, God appeared to us, that that would basically be the defining feature of our life. That'd be the most important thing about us. Uh, you know, one time God appeared to me, appeared to me. Uh, I remember being in a, a, a prayer meeting. Oh, this has been probably, I don't know, 10 or 12 years ago with a group of people. And there was a person who uh, was seeking baptism. And one of the things that uh, they were saying was they had come to faith and they said, uh, I was having a dream, I think. And they said in the dream, then you know, this man came to me and whatever had happened two or three times. And finally, the person in the dream says, I'm Jesus. I want you to follow me. And so the discussion at the prayer meeting was, should this person be baptized? And uh, the pastor at that time in the prayer meeting said, Jesus appeared to that person. Jesus appeared. They said, Jesus never appeared to me. Of course, this person should be baptized. It becomes one of the most important events in our life when something like that happens. We oftentimes struggle with the idea of um, direction, right? Maybe we'll, we'll think about, uh, should I marry a certain person? Should I take a certain job? Should I uh, move to a new city or a new country? Should I, should I do all of these kinds of things? And we have uncertainty. And in my life, and I've heard lots of believers over the years say, I wish God would just show up and tell me really clearly what I'm supposed to do. I wish God would just, just like right here in front of me, face to face, he would meet with me and say, here is the plan. We want a kind of a concrete uh, interaction with God. And we think if we had that real interaction with God that way, if we had a real definitive kind of encounter, that one, we would know exactly what we're supposed to do, and that two, we would certainly obey the instruction that God. We, there would be no question. God came. He said to do this thing, right? Uh, and, and I just did it. That's, that's the way that we tend to think about it. We tend to think like God spoke to Noah, right? Gave him real clear direction. And Noah built a boat. Built it exactly like he was supposed to build it. But oftentimes what we see in the scripture is something a lot different. We see something a lot different in the life of Solomon. We had a great uh, interaction with God, then we would definitely obey. But here's the wisest man who ever lived, the most important king of his time, uh, who the writer of Kings says, no one compares to this man. And uh, 
in the end, he's not obedient. He's just not. So we're looking at 1 Kings, 1 Kings 11. And it's um, 43 verses. So we're not going to read uh, all 43 verses. But I do want us to start out, read the first 10 verses, and then we're going to touch on some other things uh, as we go through uh, the scripture. Okay, so let's read today in uh, 1 Kings 11, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn your heart after their gods. Solomon, verse 4 says, let me make sure I'm right. Oh, we're still in verse 3. Solomon clung, Solomon clung to these women in love. That's actually verse 2. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. Verse 4. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Asherah, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as David, his, uh, I'm sorry, Solomon built a high place. I've lost my place. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David, his father, had done. There, verse 7. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. And the Lord was angry with Solomon, it says in verse 9, because his heart had turned away from, had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. And he commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Let's pray together. Father, we uh, look at the life of Solomon and we, uh, in so many ways, are just um, envious, probably. He had incredible wisdom and he had incredible wealth. He ruled over a, a mighty uh, kingdom that was far-reaching and for so many years lived in peace. He made so many advancements and his wisdom touched so many lives and yet he did not end well. And so Lord, we pray that as we think about his ending, uh, Lord, uh, as his um, leadership and as his, really his life comes to an end, Lord, would you uh, help us to uh, draw out some, some wisdom for ourselves that we might live in such a way that we bring honor to the name of Christ for as long as we live. And so we pray that you would guide us tonight, Lord, this morning. Would you uh, help me? Uh, would you keep me from error? And I pray that you would uh, guide the words of my mouth. I pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts, that your word might fall in deep. And we pray that you would produce a crop in us. And we pray that you would be glorified. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the first thing I want us to see in these verses is Solomon's willful disobedience. Really uh, the most promising or the most telling words um, in 
these verses come for me in verse 10, when uh, the end of verse 10, it says, but he did not keep what the Lord commanded. We're reminded that Solomon got really clear instruction, both from the Lord and through the law, that he was not supposed to intermarry with these foreign people. It, it would have a negative impact on his spiritual life. God said, it will pull you away. Do not do it. He was warned that he would uh, end up going after other gods. But the scripture says, rather than obey, what he did was cling to the women that he loved. And look what it, the Lord says to him in verse uh, 11. We didn't read this one before. In verse 11, therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and I will give it to your servant. Since it has been your practice to live in sin in this way, and then God starts to give some description about the judgment that's going to follow as he rips the kingdom out of Solomon's hand. He, he falls from being the greatest king in the world at that time to uh, judgment. He's under judgment. And he wasn't just disobedient in his uh, relationships or in his sexual life. God really tells him in verses 11 through uh, 13, he speaks to him and uh, he says, verse in verse 12, I'm going to take the kingdom away from you, but I'm not going to take it away from you whilst you're still alive for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, I'm going to take it away from uh, the one who comes after you. And this is to me, probably um, uh, again, the real sim uh, symbol or symptom maybe of uh, how far Solomon had drifted off his course because as God speaks to him in verses 11 and 12 and 13 and says, I'm going to take the kingdom from you, but I'm not going to take it from you. I'm going to leave it with you. But when you're gone, I'm going to take it away from your son. Solomon does not repent. He doesn't repent. That's how far he's drifted. If we drop all the way down to verse 40, it says this, Solomon sought therefore to kill Jeroboam. We're going to see in a few minutes that Jeroboam's raised up as an enemy, and God says, I'm going to give the kingdom to Jeroboam. He's going to get almost all of it. And Solomon doesn't respond with repentance. Solomon hatches a plan to murder Jeroboam. That's his, that's his big plan. That's, all, that's how much wisdom that Solomon has at this point in his life. Oh, yeah, God's going to do something different? Well, then I'll kill the person that God's going to use. Well, of course, that's not going to work out for him at all. Jeroboam runs away and he hides in uh, Egypt is what you see in the text when this, uh, when this happens. Jeroboam runs away. He comes to uh, Egypt. But we have this verse back in uh, verse 4. Solomon, uh, his, uh, his heart was turned away and his, not, his heart was not wholly true to the Lord as, he, as the heart of his father David was. Solomon comes down to this real end of his ministry time, the end of his leadership time, the end of his place as king, but he's not acting like David, his father. You know who he's acting like? He's acting like Saul, because when the Lord had moved on from Saul and said, I've appointed now, anointed someone from a different family to be king, Saul said, oh, is that right? Well, I'll just kill that guy, and that's exactly how Solomon responds. When God says, I'm going to take the 
the ruling uh, power away from your family and give it to another family, Solomon responds uh, murderously. He doesn't respond with repentance. He's not acting like his father David had said in uh, 11.4. He's, what, we, what we really can see from this text is he's acting like Saul was acting. So that's kind of the first thing I want us to see. Solomon's disobedience was really willful. The second thing is this. Other people are the ones who suffer for Solomon's sin. At least a couple of times in the scripture, we see something that I've always found really curious. Here, God is righteously judging Solomon for the things that Solomon has, uh, has been doing. But, but the scripture says, because of his commitment to David and because of his commitment to the people in Jerusalem, he says, I'm, I'm going to wait until Solomon's death and then I will split the kingdom. But I won't do it while Solomon is still alive. And this it just made me immediately think when I was reading this of uh, Hezekiah. You may be familiar with this story. And in uh, 2 Kings and 2 Kings 18 through 20, we uh, have the story of Hezekiah when he was reigning in uh, Judah. And Hezekiah did some incredible stuff while he was king there in Jerusalem. He did some fantastic things. And he uh, really made a, a long, long impact. He showed incredible faith early on and then he started to drift and finally he did something and um and when he drifted at this point and uh finally then he um the god god had decided to judge him he said this is how it's going to be then um let me just read it to you this is in two kings 20 starting in verse 16 isaiah the prophet isaiah comes to hezekiah and he says hear the word of the lord Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried into Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come after you, some whom you will father, they shall be taken away and they shall be made eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So, Isaiah comes and says, hear the word of the Lord. This is what's going to happen. That everything that you've accumulated, everything that your family has accumulated is going to be dragged off into Babylon. And some of your own sons will be made eunuchs and they will serve the king of Babylon. And in verse 19 of 2 Kings 20, Hezekiah says to Isaiah, the word that the Lord has spoken is good. For he thought, why not if there will be peace and security in my days. Why not? If there's going to be peace and security in my days, why do I need to be worried about it? And when I'm reading about Solomon and the way that he responds, I immediately thought of Hezekiah because Hezekiah had that same kind of, uh, that same kind of response. Like it, it doesn't matter if God's going to bring judgment as long as the judgment comes and I don't have to be uh, the one who's paying for it. The other people in the community, my children, my uh, my country, they're going to pay, but I'm not going to pay because God's going to delay judgment until I'm gone. Think about that. Think about that kind of uh, attitude over and against this one. This was in uh, Nineveh, right? This is a completely pagan king. This is from Jonah chapter three. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne. He removed his robe. He covered himself with sackcloth and in ashes, and he issued a proclamation and published it throughout Nineveh 
by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them... Uh, let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. So here we have these two kings that were living in Jerusalem and we have this pagan king that was living in Nineveh and the pagan king is the one who does the right thing. He tears off his clothes, he puts sackcloth and ashes, and he calls for everyone to fast and repent because it may be possible that God would relent. But Solomon didn't do that. When Solomon hears about the plan, Solomon says, oh, Jeroboam's going to be king? We'll see about that because we'll just have Jeroboam killed. Now what are you going to do? And God obviously can handle that. Solomon doesn't sit in uh, sackcloth and ashes. He continues down this road, and who pays for it? The people pay for it. After Solomon is dead and gone, uh, you, we won't get into chapter 12 until uh, a few months down the road. But we, when we get to chapter 12, you probably would just, could read it this week. Solomon's son Rehoboam comes on, and he's, a, he's an absolute mess. They come to Solomon, and, or they, they come to Rehoboam after Solomon is gone, and they say, your father was harsh to us. And then uh, we ask that you would make it a little bit easier. And Rehoboam basically in chapter 12 comes back to them and says, oh, no, it's going to get way worse. It's going to get way, way worse. And finally, the people just rise up and the kingdom is uh, stripped away in the same way that God said that it would be. His bad choices are continued to be reflected in the life of his sons and the people who follow after him. Solomon, he, he, he willfully disobeys and then he puts other people in the position where they have to pay for his sin. So when I'm thinking about this passage, I'm trying to trying to really think through, look, what are we, what are we supposed to do about, about this kind of thing? Uh, here, here are a few things that I think we can do it's just as far as obedience when we look at a passage like this. The first one is the revelation that we have is enough. The revelation that we have, it's enough for us to be obey, right? We would all love for God to sit down with us face to face and be a little bit more specific sometimes. Uh, do this and uh, don't do that. But the ideas that we, that we have oftentimes that if we had a Jesus in the flesh, that somehow we would understand better or obey better, it just is not borne out in scripture. From the time that God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden of Eden, people disobeyed him right to his face. He would say, here is exactly what I want you to do. And most of the time, the people did not do it. In, in the life of Jesus, he would be really clear. Here's what I would want you to do. And most of the time, it seems the people did not do it. We feel like that we would be better off if we had a more concrete kind of interaction. But the truth is, we have the revelation that we need. We have it in the scripture. And God doesn't give us the whole plan all at once. But he does give us his spirit and he gives us his word so that we can interact with him and we can understand who he wants us to be and understand how he wants us to live. Lots of times the people in the scripture got a really clear word and they just didn't obey it, right? Someone, even someone great like Elijah would just run off into the wilderness and collapse, right? When God would say, what are you doing here? He'd say, just, oh, just kill me now. Just kill me. 
I'm as good as I'm as good as my forefathers. I'm a dead man. Why bother to go on? Those are the kind of people who we're getting real face-to-face -face interaction. So the revelation that we have is plenty sufficient for us to be living a life of obedience, right? We wish we could have a little bit more, but uh, but really obeying one step at a time, obeying one day at a time, trusting that the Lord is doing in us what he wants to do in us. That's, that's, what, that's what we need to do. We need to trust and walk daily and believe that the Lord is going to get us where he wants us to be. So that's the first one. Revelation, the revelation that we have really is enough for us. The second thing is we should be peacemakers. When you go back through 1 Kings 11, you read the whole chapter uh, I think that one of the things that we should take away is that we have to be mindful how we treat other people. Romans 12, 18 says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Once God pronounces his judgment on Solomon in 1 Kings 11 here, um, we start to get these uh, missing pictures that come up. There's, uh, there's just really a list of people who have problems with uh, Israel. Joab, who was a a commander in David's army. He had gone at one point and did something evil in Edom. And for years, for years, an enemy was just brewing and he was waiting for an opportunity. And as soon as the scripture says, as soon as David died, as soon as David died, that enemy had died. He was looking for an opportunity to strike. David went in and he defeated Syria, but he didn't just defeat Syria. He was just, the people were killed and the place was uh, pillaged, and it was just uh, it was just excessive, apparently, to a man named Rezon, because he was uh, a constant adversary of Solomon. He remembered how David had treated his people, and he looked to take revenge at every opportunity that he had. And even Jeroboam, when we see some of his story starting in uh, chapter 11, verse 26, even Jeroboam was a servant that was right in Solomon's house. But when this prophet, uh, I think you say his name like Ahijah, Ahijah, something like that. When Ahijah comes and says, uh, take, this, take this robe and tear it into 12 pieces, uh, God's going to give you 10 parts of this kingdom and you're going to rule them. Uh, Solomon didn't just go to this man and say, hey, we've been working together. You've been serving me. Why would you do this? Because Solomon apparently hadn't been treating him all that well. And when Solomon heard that this servant of his would take over, that's when he decided that he was going to kill him. These ways that we treat other people do have a way of coming back around to us. We all sin. We all make bad decisions. We all handle situations and sometimes people are really poorly. But this really brings to mind for me that we are to be peacemakers. We are to be peacemakers. When someone comes to us and says, this is how you sinned against me, then listen to them and be repentant. And, and, and ask for ways that you should change. They're, they're, when someone says, that really hurt me, when, when you did this or that, it was, uh, I was highly offended. Then say, I'm sorry. That's, that wasn't what I intended or, or explain maybe some other way about the situation. But the most important part, just repent and try to make things right. Be a peacemaker. We see these stories all through the scripture where people just laid in wait for years and years while they waited to exact revenge on people like Solomon. The third thing, the most important thing, I think when we think about applying a passage like this is to look to Jesus. We look to Jesus. 
right? So uh, in the end, Solomon does one thing really well. He shows us that the best leaders, the wisest men and women in the world, the people that we always thought we can count on, those people will, in the end, disappoint us. If we think back to uh, that First Kings 4 and 5, there was a no one in the world like Solomon. And yet Solomon could not finish strong. God appeared to him twice, and Solomon did not finish strong. Solomon had more wealth. He had more wisdom. He had a larger kingdom than anyone like him at the time. And yet, he allowed his heart to be led astray. So no matter uh, who we follow here on earth, we are going to have a, a guarantee, really, that that person will let us down. That's just how we are as people. I'm going to let people down. I'm going to let you down, let my family down. I've made mistakes. We all do these kinds of things. But when we look to Jesus, when we really look to Jesus, the sinless one, we see exactly what we need. Jesus came to earth. He took on flesh. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross. He was buried and he was raised again on the third day. He lived a life and then died a death that he did not deserve because he could have just stayed in perfection in heaven for all time. It wasn't, it wasn't necessary that he understand hunger and yet he took on flesh and he understood what it was like to be hungry, to be mistreated, to be misunderstood, to be uh, alone. And yet he went and he paid uh, all of our debt and he gave us all of his obedience. So not only is my sin not held against me, all of his obedience is credited to my account. It's incredible. It's just this beautiful picture. So where earthly kings will always, um, always disappoint us, Jesus will never fail. Jesus endures, and so um, we can trust him. He will lead us to the place that he wants us to go. We can place our faith in him with full assurance that he will deliver the abundant life that he wants us to have. It's easy to think that more money, to think that more education, to think that uh, more spouses or a different spouse or any of these kinds of things, a different place in life, more of what the world could offer. It's easy to think that more of something would be satisfying. But in the truth, Jesus Christ, that's why we look to him. He's the one thing that we need that will really satisfy. Ultimately, what we see from Solomon in his life and what uh, comes down to the end here when they say, uh, and the rest of all these things about Solomon, aren't they just written down in the book of the Acts of Solomon? When his life is recorded into a book and the book is closed, we see the greatest human beings that ever lived still need a savior. Let's pray. Lord, I definitely don't feel um, great. I don't feel like one of the most uh, powerful or influential people of my day, but I do still feel like I need a savior. And Lord, if it's true for somebody like Solomon, Lord, I know it's true for me. And so we pray that as we, um, as we seek to really not just read the scripture, but understand these principles and apply them to our lives, uh, Lord, I, I pray we wouldn't just get into some situation where we think, well, uh, God appeared to Solomon, therefore Solomon's more important, and, and then Solomon got judged harsher because he didn't do I believe that Solomon was a man, and I think that he wouldn't listen, that he disobeyed, that he was judged for that. And uh, Lord, I, I, I um, 
I just think that my life can go exactly the same way that when I refuse to heed the call that's coming from Christ, when I refuse to obey that uh, you have a way of getting me back on track. And so I pray that I would listen to the voice of conviction that comes through the Holy spirit and uh, Lord, that, that I would not be uh, pushed into uh, some sort of corner where uh, only punishment is going to make me listen. Thank you again for my brothers and sisters and the time that we've had to uh, gather together here today. Lord, whether that's uh, someone watching live or whether that's someone that catches it on recording later on, I pray that you would let the light of Christ shine into us. Lord, not only into us, but through us and into the dark world that surrounds us. Would you use us as instruments of reconciliation? Would you uh, allow us, Lord, to carry the name of Christ so that more and more we would see people who are baptized, who are celebrating the Lord's Supper, who are welcomed into this family that we have that is in Christ. And so we thank you for the day that we have today. We pray that you'd go with us as we finish and depart in these next few minutes. In Jesus' name, amen.